Hello, friends. It's great to see you. Great to be with you uh, on live video. Hopefully, this is all going to work. Uh, looking forward to talking with you for a few minutes about uh, the book of Matthew as we continue to uh, take a look into Matthew chapters 21 and 22 today. Hope you were able to uh, view the last one, uh, which was from Matthew 19 and 20. Uh, those are very significant chapters. They're all significant, of course, but uh, just uh, looking at several different things uh, today uh, from the upcoming chapters and excited about uh, where this is all going to take us. We'll be doing a lot of reading, as we have been already, because these last several chapters in the book of Matthew are, um, well, th there's just a lot in them, and it's a very important time, obviously, for Jesus. Because during these last few chapters, he is, he's really being challenged by the religious leaders. And, uh, and it's, a very, it's a very difficult thing, I believe, for him and a very difficult thing for the people that are hearing him because they're having a, a lot of trouble. Nice to see some folks joining us already. I see the Mosleys are there, my great friends Eric and Cindy and uh, the Kellenbergers. Great to see you. Uh, some old, old friends. Uh, uh, Roger Soler and uh, TJ, great to see you, brother. Wow, TJ. Man, I hope you and all your wonderful family are doing well because y'all mean so much to us. Uh, so many great memories uh, with all of you. Uh, the Murphys here with us again. Uh, it was great to get to see uh, your daughter on Sunday and all of her family. That was quite a blessing and they are, um, they're, they're just the best of the best. Um, and so again, we've been doing these studies on the book of Matthew at four o'clock central time uh, on um, Tuesdays and Thursdays. And so since it's Tuesday, and since we've got a lot, of a lot to cover today uh, in Matthew chapters 21 and 22, depending on how long-winded the preacher is, hopefully <laughs> we'll be able to get a lot, a lot done. Um, Matthew chapters 19 and 20 was such an intensive study, uh, a difficult study. And so again, the, the, the uh, recording of that is on my Facebook page. You'll just have to scroll down a little bit. Also on our church website, uh, westerwin.com. And uh, you can uh, find our uh, live uh, messaging and social media resources uh, link. And it'll, you'll find our live streaming page. And, and it's under archives. There's a lot of my former, of my previous studies from Matthew. Also my sermons. Also... Um, the, the little devotional messages that I've uh, been putting out. Um, you may want to check on my Facebook page or on that uh, page for the, uh, for the little devotional message, uh, not very little, actually long, that I put in uh, just yesterday uh, about uh, the Stockdale paradox and uh, some of the things that are going on in our country today. A lot of the kinds of conflict that Jesus was having uh, we can identify with because of everything that we're experiencing today. Uh, but I shared some thoughts about um, uh, Admiral Jim Stockdale and the uh, comments made in the book Good to Great about the Stockdale paradox and some articles that I've read recently that reminded me of that. Um, and that that whole understanding and idea that um, that you can uh, you can have two things in your mind that seem to be in conflict but that are both true. Uh, and that's what got him through several years of uh, a POW camp uh, uh, incarceration in Vietnam. 
basically saying the idea, the understanding and the belief and the assurance that we're going to get through this, that we'll see this through and that the Lord will deliver us. Uh, but that being said, also the acknowledgement that this is a very difficult time and that some of the things that are happening are, are very hard and brutal in his case at a POW camp. And so I hope that you'll be able to um, uh, check in on that uh, devotional message that's a little bit uh, scrolling down on my page uh, that has to do with the Stockdale Paradox. But as we get into uh, Matthew 21, uh, again, chapter 19, uh, Jesus questioned about some things, uh, divorce and remarriage, uh, chapter 20, the idea of being a servant, uh, uh, the, the questioning of this, um, uh, this rich young ruler who uh, was very materialistic and refused to be willing to part with uh, those material things. And uh, Jesus saying the one thing to him, challenging him uh, in the one area that he could that would uh, cause him to leave. And that's what Jesus brought up. And that's, that's what he does with us. He just refuses to share the throne of our hearts with anything. And so whatever that one thing is that's going to keep us from um, totally serving him and following him, that's what he will throw uh, in our way. And he'll call us to, uh, to decide uh, between him and whatever that is. And so chapters 21 and 22 continue that same kind of questioning. Um, Jesus speaking in very clear terms to his disciples in Matthew 20 about what it means to follow him, to be a, a true servant. The greatest among you, he says, will be your servants. And that's what, that's what Jesus uh, calls us to be and to do. And that challenges everything in our 21st century American culture, which says, no, the greatest are the greatest. <laughs> the greatest are the ones that have the servants. The greatest are the ones uh, that get all the applause. The greatest are the ones that draw the biggest crowds. The greatest are the ones that have people serving them. And Jesus says, well, not so with you in Matthew 20. And so that brings us to chapter 21. And um, these two chapters are really good to study together, I think. Um, and, and I think it's because they, uh, Jesus is on his way into Jerusalem and then arrives and then uh, opens himself up uh, to all the questions. Um, and so uh, that's where we are in Matthew chapter 21. As he, we read this incredible story of the triumphal entry, and it's not like what we would expect. Most everything in the Gospels is not like what we would expect. When you consider a triumphal entry, then you, you know, think of somebody coming in on, on a, 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 a white stallion with army all around, with a sword raised, uh, with, um, you know, the captives, the enemies that have been overcome. Uh, walking in front or trailing behind, but that's not, that's not how Jesus does it. And he does it in fulfillment of prophecy, and yet he does it in a way that uh, still uh, calls on everyone around to, um, to just uh, praise him. Uh, and so Matthew 21, beginning in verse 1, as they approached Jerusalem, came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone sees, says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he'll send them uh, right away. And, and this took place, as Matthew says, to fulfill prophecy. Matthew, remember, the king and his kingdom. This is uh, what we read throughout the book of Matthew. That's what the title of this study is. 
and it's the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of man. Uh, later on, in, when he is, stands before Pilate, John will record the interaction between Jesus and the governor, the uh, Roman governor, the pagan leader, Pilate, Pontius Pilate, and the interaction between them and, and Pilate thinking that he's got Jesus trapped because uh, he recognizes that he, he is a king, that he does have a kingdom. And Jesus says, yeah, you're right, I do. Uh, but the kingdom is not of this world. We don't fight the way you fight. We don't have uh, the same values that you value. Uh, my kingdom is not of this world. And, and we see indications of that even in this story. Um, and so the disciples go, they find the cult, just like he said. Um, and then uh, Jesus begins to come into town. He's sitting on that cult, uh, a very large crowd, Matthew 21, verse 8, spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And so we uh, call this Palm Sunday. We call this the time when Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, um, uh, just days away from uh, being killed on the cross. Um, the crowds that went ahead of him, verse 9, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Uh, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Up until this time, Jesus had tried to tone it down. Remember, he had tried to tell people or demons, uh, whoever would recognize him when he would do a miracle, he would try to tell them, look, don't, don't say anything to everybody. Don't broadcast this. And we hear John in his gospel time and again saying, the hour has not yet come, but then finally, uh, the hour has come. And that's where we are right now. And so Jesus uh, comes in a very public way um, before the people in Jerusalem. And, and then uh, he immediately <laughs> gets into trouble. Verse 12, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers and thieves. Um, we, we see this story a couple of times in the Gospels, and it could be that there are two different occasions, uh, one early in his ministry and one here towards the end. Uh, and it could be that uh, Jesus did this a couple of times. Um, again, the gospel writers write with a purpose, and uh, they're not worried too much about chronology. Uh, they have a basic chronology, and, and that fits their purpose, and they're recording events that actually happened, and certainly that's what Matthew is doing uh, here. Um, and um, was Jesus angry here? Well, yeah. And was he mad? He was absolutely mad. He was um, indignant. He was very angry. Was he out of control? No. I don't believe that for a second. Uh, sometimes uh, something happens that actually should make us angry. The Bible doesn't say, don't ever be angry. Uh, in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, it says, don't, uh, don't let the anger overwhelm you. Um, be angry, but do not sin. And so there's that sense where we recognize that there are some things that we should be angry about and should be upset about. And we've read through some of those, even here in this study of Matthew. 
and and it would be uh, it would be unrealistic to to try to explain that away by saying Jesus wasn't angry here. He was angry. He was angry. He was angry at sin. He was angry at the religious leaders who who should know better. And we're going to see that anger played out in a huge way again in just a couple of chapters in chapter 23, uh, when he really takes them to task uh, and, um, and really calls them out and ultimately leads to his own arrest and uh, death. Uh, but here he's angry as well. And um, we understand that they had to, uh, they had to do this. People would travel uh, to Jerusalem to worship at the temple and because it was um, unrealistic to travel with all of the animals that they may want to sacrifice, then they would purchase them there. Uh, but for Jesus, he saw this as something that had gone uh, too far and perhaps in the wrong place, perhaps in the wrong way, uh, very likely that people were being taken advantage of and, and he wouldn't have it. And so Jesus reacts in a very strong way. He could have just said, this is wrong. You need to stop doing this. But um, it was the time for action. And sometimes actions are what it's called for. And we should never be afraid to put it out there and to lay it on the line when actions need to be done in, um, in, in a coordination with our words uh, and our teaching. Um, and so Matthew continues on in verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law or scribes saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. See, Jesus got angry over things that people should be angry about. The religious leaders got angry because they felt like um, he was having a uh, the kind of praise that they wanted for themselves. They were angry that their place and position and authority was being threatened. And it, and it was, it truly was. It had been, it had started in the Sermon on the Mount. It had started with Jesus talking about who really was the blessed one in the Beatitudes. And Jesus kept that message consistently all throughout his ministry. And we see it even here in the last days of his ministry. Uh, they challenge him about it in verse 16. Do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth praise. Uh, Jesus quotes uh, the book of Psalms, and Matthew will uh, quote all of these Old Testament uh, prophets and Psalms and other places that fulfill, that, that show that what is happening with Jesus is a fulfillment uh, to uh, again, give him credibility as he is the son of God and the Messiah or savior. And so Jesus left them, went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Um, could very well be that he stayed at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Obviously, Lazarus uh, healed, uh, resurrected. A great story from uh, the book of John in chapter 11 and uh, other stories with Mary and Martha um, and uh, just a, an incredible relationship that Jesus had um, with them. And so he stays there just very close to Jerusalem uh, and yet outside of, uh, of town. Early in the morning in verse 18, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it but found nothing on it except leaves. 
Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. Um, we, we hear stories like this in the gospels. We see other accounts of Jesus doing this and perhaps taking a few days or, and again, there are, the gospels are selective in what they write, the gospel writers are, but they also write about um, uh, different events. And just like Jesus taught things such as the Sermon on the Mount, probably on several different occasions, uh, the greatest commandments on several different occasions, as we're going to read one of them in Matthew 22, um, it, perhaps he did things like this on different occasions as well. But what we do know is he did it here. And the disciples are impressed. And, you know, it's interesting to me that um, Jesus would not turn the stones into bread at the words of Satan when he was tempted in, at the very beginning in Matthew 4. But here he would curse this fig tree because, same reason, he was hungry. And yet it was a totally different uh, circumstance. And, of course, here it becomes a moment uh, to teach his disciples, uh, to teach us. Jesus says in verse 21, I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but you can say to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask in prayer. And of course, we understand that with the understanding that um, if it's in accordance with God's will, Jesus himself would pray a prayer in just a little bit in the Garden of Gethsemane that received the answer, no. Uh, because it was not the Father's will. The Apostle Paul would experience the same thing when he asked the Father to take away his thorn in the flesh in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And in those cases, it was just not the Father's uh, will. Sometimes the answer to our very faithful prayers is yes. Sometimes it's no. Sometimes it's wait. But all the time we know that God hears us. And and we recognize that, um, that we have uh, great power uh, to live faithfully each day as Jesus expresses here. From here on out, uh, it's Jesus versus the religious leaders. And ultimately, it will end on Calvary, and yet it doesn't end there. Ultimately, uh, it will end with a, an empty tomb and Jesus' ascension to the throne room of the Father. But for now, they're going to go back and forth a while, so we're going to go with them. Um, Jesus uh, is questioned about why he's doing his, the things he's doing and what gives him the right. Interestingly enough, the, at the beginning in, of the Gospel of Matthew, when he's talking about the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of that great passage from Matthew 5 through 7, at the end of chapter 7, Matthew says that the people responded by saying, he is teaching us with authority and not like our religious leaders. Authority is, is not something you can demand, although that is a low level of influence and authority, simply because people have to uh, accept you as an authority over them. But authority is something in a greater way that is earned, and Jesus has earned it. But the, he will go back and forth a little with the religious leaders. They ask him, why? what gives you the right to do these things? And Jesus responds in verse 24, kind of turns the tables on them a bit. I will ask you one question. If you answer me, I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or was it from earth? Was it from God or was it from men? 
And so you can kind of see them going back kind of behind the corner and talking together in their little group and saying, well, what, let's, what, what should we say? What should we say? Well, if we say uh, that, that it was from heaven, then he's going to say, well, why didn't you follow him? Why weren't you baptized? But if we say it was from earth, it was from men, it wasn't from God, then the people are going to really react strongly because they all think he was a prophet. They all were baptized. They all accepted his teaching. So they go back to Jesus and they say, yeah, we don't know. We're not going to tell you. And then Jesus responds and says, well, then I'm not going to answer your question either. Um, and, and you would think that that would shut them up completely, but it doesn't. And there's still back and forth that goes on. Uh, especially throughout uh, these next two chapters. And part of the way Jesus responds to them is with parables. We've talked about parables. We've seen several parables, such as in Matthew 13 and other places, uh, where Jesus talks to them about uh, a lesson that he tells in story form. And remember, one of the things, uh, several things about the parables, they're usually about real-life situations, such as this one we're about to read about these two sons. Um, there's always a point to the parable. There can be lots of different applications, I think, but as you read a parable, you have to ask yourself, what is the point of the parable? And one of the things that we especially notice uh, in the parables is, is kind of the context and, and what, leads us, what leads us up to that. Um, and so here in Matthew 21, starting at verse 28, Jesus tells this parable about these two sons. There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he said, but later he went. And then he asked the second son to do the same. And the son says, well, sure, of course I'll go, dad. But then he doesn't. Jesus asked in verse 31, which of the two did what his father wanted? And it's not the one who said he was going to do it, but didn't. It's the one who actually did the work even though he said at first that he wouldn't. Jesus said to him, them, I truly, I tell you, tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness. And you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Jesus is action oriented. Don't just talk a good game and leave it there. He wants us to talk a good game, but he also wants us to follow it up by walking the walk, uh, by being willing to do what's right, um, and not just hear his word as he has said, but doing it, obeying it. He says in Matthew 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who actually does the will of my Father in heaven. It's the reason why he tells that story of the wise man who built his house on the rock in Matthew 7 versus the foolish man who built his house on the sand. The wise man is the one who hears his words and does them, Jesus says, and the fool is the one who hears them and doesn't do them. And then he tells them another parable in verse 33. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. And as you know, Jesus goes on and tells the story. Every time he sent a servant, um, they would not respond. They would not respond. And finally, the owner says, I'll send my son. Surely they will respect 
my son. Instead, they say, hey, here's the heir. Let's kill him and we'll be done with this and it'll be ours. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, verse 40, what will he do to those tenants? And I love the way it's worded. He'll take, get, take those wretches and put them to a wretched end. <laughs> and Jesus said, have you never read in the scriptures, verse 42, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. We hear this quoted in other places in the New Testament as well. Jesus is that cornerstone. What they would do is they would take the biggest stone rock that they could find and they would put it where they wanted to build on and then they would put the other rocks in, around it so that their foundation could be strong. Jesus says you've rejected that, that most important stone, that cornerstone. Um, and so Jesus says the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, verse 43, and given to a people who will produce its fruit, who will walk the walk. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. And again, we go back to Matthew 11 and Jesus saying, take my yoke upon you. Um, don't take your own. It's too strong. It's too heavy. You can't do it on your own. But if you'll take mine, it'll be rough. It'll be hard. But, but I can help you through this and you will find rest. Um, Jesus tells them, um, you're not going to win this war. Um, ultimately, you'll be defeated. Um, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. Bingo. Got it. Unfortunately, that didn't drive them to repent and to serve him. Unfortunately, it, they decided that they would arrest him and that ultimately they would put him to death. But they had to wait for the right time because everyone was following Jesus at this moment. Ultimately, they would be able to stir the crowd up uh, to call for his blood. That gets us to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, uh, another parable. Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants. Tell them to come. I've prepared my dinner, he says, but they refused to come. They paid no attention. They made excuses, Jesus says in verse 5. Others mistreated the messengers, the ones who were calling them to come, uh, probably thinking of the prophets, calling on God's people to come, even John the Baptist, calling on his people, saying, prepare the way for the Lord, get ready for the kingdom of God. And ultimately, he was put to death by Herod. Then he said to his servants, verse 8, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited didn't deserve to come. So go out to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So they did. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Verse 11, but when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness, for there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are invited, but few are chosen. And we want to say, what? <laughs> Jesus, didn't you tell your servants to go out and and invite everybody in, and now you see somebody that's not dressed quite right, and you're throwing them out? I don't get it. And I, I, 
I think there's uh, uh, this is a very confusing parable at this at this part of it anyway, and we don't really get it. We don't really understand it. But but what is, what is Jesus saying? I, I think there's there's a lot of things that maybe we could we could try to explain about this. But one thing I want to say today is this: uh, even in the midst of of God's wonderful and amazing grace, uh, He still calls on us. Uh, to be willing to accept that grace. He still calls on us to be willing uh, to submit ourselves to his will. He still calls on us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. Um, we might look at this passage, were it not for those last couple of verses, and say, see there, Jesus doesn't care how we live. Jesus doesn't care what we look like. Jesus just wants us to, to come into his kingdom and and he'll accept us just as we are, and he won't ask us to change a thing. And that's, that's just not true. Jesus will accept us as we are, but he will call on us to change. And he will call on us to repent. He will call on us to submit our will to his will. And I think that's a part of what this story um, is saying. Jesus, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, starting in the Sermon on the Mount, continuing on with that very hard hard chapter of Matthew chapter 10, uh, going on into great statements such as we mentioned a moment ago in Matthew 7. Um, later on, Jesus giving us that instruction about what it, what it means to be one of his followers, one of his disciples, that it means that we have to value our heavenly existence, our eternal life, greater than everything. Uh, that we have to not try to save our lives and, and get our way in this life, but to be willing to give ourselves uh, so that we can take hold of the life that is really life, to deny ourselves in this world and to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. I think that's, that's what Jesus is alluding to uh, here. And so we, we try to find out what his will is and we study his word and we seek to... Um, adjust our lives to his will rather than trying to find a way to rationalize and adjust his will uh, to what we want. That's, that's just never been the case of what, what God calls for. Old Testament, Gospels, New Testament, uh, he calls on us to, to be obedient. We, we are not completely obedient. We still sin, and that's where the blood of Jesus comes through, and we're thankful for it. That's where the grace comes through, as he talks about in this passage, in this parable, of being invited to a, to a wedding banquet that we really have no right to go to. And yet at the same time, what he's saying is, but you're going to have to come here on my terms. Um, either the doctrine of universalism is true, which says, because Jesus died on the cross, everybody is saved no matter what, including the people who spit in his eye, who deny his very existence, who refuse to submit their will to his who kind of have that sin of the high and uplifted hand, which is looking up towards heaven and saying, God, I know what you want, but I'm going to do it my way anyway. Um, that, that's universalism. If that's not the case, then there is an answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? What is the response of faith? We hear that question asked several times over and over again in the book of Acts. And, and it, the answer is always the same. You've got to believe. You, without faith, it's impossible to please him, the writer of Hebrews says. You've got to repent. Repentance means to change, to say, I'm going to submit my will to your will, God. I won't do it perfectly, but I'm going to do it the very best that I can. 
to be willing to confess that that's your faith inside and to be willing to be baptized. Uh, Acts 2 uh, says to repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. After praying and fasting for three days, Saul of Tarsus, having seen the resurrected Jesus, believed strongly, had repented, and yet he was told in Acts 22, verse 16, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized and wash your sins away. Baptism is not a work that causes us to earn salvation any more than believing in Jesus is a work that, that causes us to earn salvation. It's simply what Jesus said that his people would do uh, to respond in faith to his call to serve. And then after that, we get to serve him. We get to seek to do his will. Imperfectly, yes, uh, true, true. But seeking his will and seeking to be obedient to it. Uh, that's what Jesus is calling us to do. That's what Jesus is calling us uh, to be. And I think that's why this man was thrown out, because he refused uh, to do that. And so Jesus gets back to a passage, uh, a question that we had talked about earlier. Remember earlier, Peter and Jesus are talking, and, and there's a question as to Peter, why, why doesn't your master pay income taxes? Does he, does he pay the taxes? And and Jesus has that little interaction with Peter and then tells him to cast his, cast his line out in the sea. And he brings up this fish that's got exactly what they need to pay in their taxes in his mouth. Well, I think that's the greatest way ever <laughs> to pay taxes. But here's, here's what happens in this very familiar story. In Matthew 22, beginning in verse 15, um, the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. And we're going to see several attempts at that. Uh, they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Now, the Herodians are named that way because they're sympathetic to King Herod, who is sympathetic to the Romans. And so these are the individuals, the Herodians especially, are the ones who uh, had one foot in heaven, but another foot firmly entrenched in the world. And they didn't want to give up their worldliness. They didn't want to give up their power for the sake of God. And so they go to Jesus with this question, kind of expected. Teacher, they said, we know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Blah, blah, blah. They're just trying to butter him up. Tell us, verse 17, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Again, this question isn't because they're curious. It's not because they're really seriously, sincerely wondering. It's because they're trying to trap him. Because it's against the law not to pay the taxes. And yet Jesus says we should be mindful of being good citizens. And yet at the same time, there's, you know, Caesar is not God. We serve God, um, not Caesar. Um, and so they think they've got him. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. So they bring him a coin, a denarius, uh, basically a day's wage for that coin. And he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. And then the Sadducees, another sect of the Jews is going to come along. And so I love to tell this story from an American perspective. Uh, show me a dollar bill. Show me a dollar bill. Whose face is that? on the dollar bill? Well, you would say it's Washington's. And so I would say, well, then give to Washington. <laughs> what is Washington's? And give to God 
what is God's. Uh, Christians are okay paying their taxes. Sometimes it's a burden. Um, sometimes we realize that, um, that there are some very big things at play and we're involved in that discussion in our world. Uh, this world is not our eternal home, but it's our home for now. And so we care about this world. We care about this world and we want what's best for it. And we care about our governing authority. Scripture over and over again in passages like Romans 13 tells us that we should pray for our civil authorities. Paul tells Timothy, pray for our civil authority so that there can be peace in the land so that the gospel can be spread. Um, and that's what we do. It's always because of a desire uh, to see the kingdom of God uh, established and spread. Um, but not just for our own benefit, not just for our own uh, safety. But, and we realize that sometimes when that doesn't happen, that peace doesn't come, the gospel is spread even more. That was the case in the first few centuries of the church's existence. Um, but we do, we do pray. We do recognize that, you know, what, what belongs to Washington, we, we send to Washington. <laughs> but what belongs to God, we give to God. And remember, Jesus has said in Matthew 6, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all the other things that you need, you'll have them. You may not have everything you want. And the things that you have, you may include great difficulty and suffering uh, with. And Jesus never sugarcoats that we may find it difficult to follow him, that we may have to give up some things, uh, even including our own uh, safety, our own lives. We pray that that won't happen, but there are people around the world that it's happening to still. And we recognize, we look inside our hearts and we ask ourselves, if I have to pay a real price, if I have to sacrifice, in order to follow Jesus, is my faith strong enough that I would do that? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. And then this question, beginning in Matthew 22, verse 23, it is the most ridiculous question and scenario you will find anywhere. But the response that Jesus gives and the answer is also very, very important and significant. It's this question by the Sadducees. They're a sect of the Jews like the Pharisees, but the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees is the Pharisees believed that there was a resurrection. The Sadducees didn't. And so when they are up to bat to try to trap Jesus, they give him a question that not only can trap him and get him in trouble, but maybe can help them win this argument about whether or not there is a resurrection. And so they give him this crazy scenario of this woman who marries a man, and then the man dies before they can have children. And in the tradition of leveret marriage, uh, the next brother would marry this woman, and so the first uh, son born to them would carry on the uh, deceased brother's uh, heritage. Uh, we find that story in the Old Testament in the book of, of Genesis uh, regarding some of those in the early times uh, of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, and their descendants. Here we, we see that there is this crazy weird scenario where the first brother dies, the second brother marries the woman, and the second brother dies. Next in line continues. All in all, seven brothers die, and then the woman dies. Now I'm thinking if I'm brother number five or six, I'm going to be heading for Lower Slobovia or somewhere. I'm out of there. This woman is bad news. She is bad luck. 
there's no way I'm going to sign on to this deal. Of course, it's just a story, Bill. It's just a story. It's made up to try to trap Jesus. And so all seven of the brothers die, and then the woman dies. And so they come to Jesus with this kind of question as they sneer at him. So if there is a resurrection, in the resurrection, whose wife would she be? And they think they've got him. But instead, Jesus tells them some really interesting things as he responds to them in Matthew 22, beginning at verse 29. Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. I want us to come back to that in just a moment. At the resurrection, Matthew 22, verse 33, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection, okay, so he's answered their question. There's no marriage in heaven. You don't, you don't marry. You don't worry about that. That's not a question that's going to come up. Um, and so he's answered their argument. But he wants to say another word or two about the resurrection because it's such an important thing. It is our hope. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, without the resurrection, if, if all we have is this world, then, then we're to be pitied above everyone because why would we ever live the way we're living if, if this was it? Now, I think the way we're living has great value in this world, but the value is especially seen in the promise of eternal life. And so Jesus says in verse 30 uh, that there will not be marriage in heaven, but about the resurrection. Have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so he tells them, and, and, and this is a great statement about the inspiration of Scripture. Jesus not only calls to mind the words that were written, back in the Old Testament days, but he calls to mind even the, the tense of the word. I am the present. And it's totally significant uh, because Jesus bases his argument about the resurrection on that tense. I am. I am. The verb tense is present, not past. He doesn't say I was the God of Abraham while Abraham was alive. But Jesus says, he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Earlier, we had seen in, the, in that uh, incredible transfiguration, Moses and Elijah resurrected to spend some time with Jesus, talking to him uh, in Luke's version uh, about what was soon to transpire with his life and his death and his suffering. Uh, here, Jesus points back to those words, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, I am the God of Jacob. God is not a God of the dead, but of the living. So there surely is a resurrection. Absolutely, Jesus would say. Um, and so he, he ends their argument, but he also teaches about the importance of the resurrection. But I want to go back to, just for a moment to verse 29. He tells these religious leaders, and I think not just the Sadducees, but all of those religious leaders that are hearing this and that are trying to trap him. And he tells them, you're in error. And he says, you're in error because you don't know the scriptures. And the interesting thing to me about that is they knew the scriptures upwards and backwards, back and forth, front and back, beginning to end. They could quote the scriptures, but they didn't know them. They didn't apply them. They didn't put them into their lives. They didn't uh, seek to be obedient to those scriptures. 
And so he tells them, look, you don't, you don't know your Bible. And they could possibly have said, test me. I can quote, I can quote it anywhere you ask. I'll quote it. And, and what Jesus is saying here is as important as that is to read the Bible, it's important to apply it. It's important to consider how it applies in your life and then to be obedient to that. Uh, they didn't know the scriptures. They knew all about the scriptures. And in the same way, they didn't know the one the scriptures reveal. They didn't know God. They knew all about him, but they didn't know him. And so when the long-awaited Messiah, when the Christ, the Son of God, was actually standing right in front of them, they didn't recognize him. Why? Because they didn't know the scripture. We need to study. We need to consider. We need to think. We need to talk. We need to pray. We need to try to apply as best we can, as best we can understand what God is calling us to do and to be. And we understand what that is by reading his inspired word. Um, okay, this great passage beginning in verse 34, uh, the greatest commandment. We read about this in other places in the Gospels as well. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, Luke adds the story of the Good Samaritan uh, because of these words uh, in Luke chapter 15. Mark seems to indicate that the man who asks the question as he records it was someone a little bit more sincere. As Jesus, as Matthew records it here in Matthew 22, it's just another in a long line of attempts to trap him. Uh, but what he says, again, how he responds uh, is, is a great and wonderful, challenging, but so significant teaching. Verse 34, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, and it's just amazing what he does here. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, the sacred Shema, that passage in Deuteronomy chapter six, where um, Moses is talking about how important it is for us to pass along the faith to others. And the primary law, the primary thing that must be passed on is that the Lord is God. The Lord is God. The very first of the Ten Commandments have no other gods before me. <clears throat> Here in this passage, Jesus looks back to that statement, that call, that commandment to love God first, to love the Lord your God with everything about you, everything you are, everything you have. Love the Lord your God. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. And <clears throat> if I'm that man, I'm saying, nope, nope, I just wanted the first one. That's all I needed. Thanks. Just kind of curious. No. Jesus volunteers the second. Why is that? Well, let's remind ourselves of what that second commandment is. Love your neighbor as yourself. A direct quote from the book of Leviticus. Leviticus of all places. Uh, Leviticus 19, quoting Leviticus about love, about treating your neighbor with love. Again, Luke in Luke 15, the man who was talking to him would ask the question, trying to justify himself, uh, so who is my neighbor? Who do I have to love? 
And Jesus goes, wrong question. That's not the right question. The right question is, what's the loving thing to do? How can I show love to my neighbor, whoever that is, whatever situation they're in, whatever uh, values they have, whether they're my friend or my enemy, whether they agree with me or disagree with me, doesn't matter. I'm to treat them with love. In the Sermon on the Mount, he spells it out plainly, love your enemies, not just your friends, your enemies. Serve your enemies, not just your friends, but your enemies. Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, this is what separates me from everyone else, and this is what will separate my followers from everyone else, that they have a genuine love for others, including those who mean them harm. Now, that doesn't mean that we are give up our brains and check our brains at the door and that we are stupid about this and, and uh, take unhealthy risks, but it does mean that we want what's best for them. My favorite definition of love is love always acts in the best interest of the other. That's the right question to ask. When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, we ask, well, what is the loving thing to do here? Whatever that might be. Sometimes it's a word of of question or direction or confrontation even. Sometimes that can be the loving thing, and we can do that in love. Paul tells the Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 15, speak the truth, but speak the truth in love. Uh, And that's what we're called to do, and I think that's what Jesus is saying here. Love your neighbor as yourself. Earlier he had said, again in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, to do unto others as you would have them do unto you, to treat others as you would like to be treated, what we call the golden rule. This is what James will call in James chapter two, the royal law, to love neighbor as self. Why does Jesus share this? Well, (laughs) which of these two is the easiest to do? I don't know. They're inseparable, Jesus says. John, uh, the, the beloved apostle, and First John would, would tell us that you can't love God if you're not loving your neighbor and your brother and your sister. Um, and I think that's why Jesus gives both of these. Because he says, look, to love God is one thing, but if you're not loving your neighbor, if you're not loving those around you whom God has created in his own image, then you can't say that you love God. As important as loving God is, it can't be separated from loving our neighbor as well. Uh, The Ten Commandments, uh, six of the ten, six are horizontal in nature. They're the ones that talk about loving our neighbor as ourselves. Only four of them are speaking specifically about our direct love and obedience to God. The others are saying, here's how you should treat one another. There's so much in scripture about that. It seems to be something that's kind of a big deal to God. It was a really big deal to Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And so when we're wondering if we should talk about our brother or sister or someone else, even our enemy, in a negative, gossipy, slanderous way, we don't have to look up the scriptures, although they're there that say it's wrong to slander. We just have to look at the scripture that says we are called to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we ask ourselves, is this loving my neighbor, really? And I think deep down we know 
We know the answer to that question. I think the religious leaders of Jesus' day, as they ask him these questions, they knew, they knew, but they refused to see it. And more importantly, they refused to act on it. Um, Jesus says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Everything can be pointed back to one of these two, loving God, loving neighbor. And I think the same is true today. This is how we're to live our lives, loving God first, putting him first, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, being obedient to him and to his will. Jesus even saying in the Gospel of John, three times in just a short period of verses in chapter 14, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Loving God, but then also loving neighbor as self. Being willing to love our neighbor and to do everything we can to help them, not hurt them, not to be cruel to them, but to lead them on a path that leads to God, that leads to life. So we're going to finish chapter 22 today. How about that? And they say there's no miracles today. Ha. Okay, Matthew 22, beginning at verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? So now the shoe is on the other foot. Again, Jesus asks them a question. And again, it's going to put them in a spot because they're either going to have to acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, or they're going to have to deny uh, the fact that Scripture is true. While the Pharisees were gathered, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they say. And remember, the greater, the, the greater one is the ancestor, not the descendant. The greater one is the father, not the son. And so they say, well, the Messiah is the son of David, and that is true. Verse 43, Jesus said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, quoting the Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? And we're going to see that scripture come up again. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I let your enemies be at your feet from Psalm 110. It's one of those royal Psalms that that would apply perhaps to some extent to the king who is also called uh, the son of God in a, in a different sense. But it especially applies to the Messiah, to the Christ. And they all un took it that way. They all understood it that way. And, and so Jesus asked them, well, who's greater, David or his son? And they would say, well, obviously the ancestor is the greater one. And yet the Lord said to my Lord, David says, the father said to the son, he didn't understand it. The people of Jesus' day didn't understand it, but they would. They would when they see him crucified and raised from the dead, declared with power to be the son of God, Paul writes in Romans chapter one, through the resurrection, Jesus, the son of God. We, we see that today. Um, Jesus challenges them, and they can't answer him. They don't know. Maybe they've never thought about that. And yet, truly, one greater than David was standing right in front of them. One who created King David was standing right in front of them. And ultimately, they would put him to death, but they would realize that that tomb became empty. 
Verse 46 of Matthew 22, no one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So Jesus shuts them up, but only for a while, only for the moment. Because we know what's going to happen. Their anger is going to continue. In Matthew 23, Jesus is going to go from going back and forth with them about their questions and his questions to pronouncing woe, pronouncing you are in sad, sad shape, you religious leaders, because you have misused and abused the word of God and the people of God. And he calls them out on it. And ultimately it causes him uh, to be killed. They stir up the crowd against him. They take one of his own disciples uh, to betray him and to take them secretly to a place where they, he would know that Jesus would be late at night with no one around. And they arrest him and they try him in this mock trial. And, and finally, they crucify him. But we know that's not the end. It's not the end. It's not the end for Jesus. And it's not the end for you or for me. And so as we read these stories and as we look forward, uh, starting on Thursday to these last moments in Jesus' life, his last and final teachings, uh, ultimately that, that look ahead uh, to the time when uh, things would get crazy, as he describes it in Matthew 24, and then ultimately um, the, the time that he has spent on this life, in this life on this earth, come to a close. And his life is taken, but he gives it up willingly. Could have stopped it at any time, but he gives it up willingly. Why? Because he loved his enemies first. He loved those who sought his harm. He loved those who were disobedient. Um, we heard a scripture as we partook of communion this past Sunday um, from Romans uh, chapter 5. Uh, God demonstrates his, uh, his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I hope you'll hang in there with me on Thursday and then the last Tuesday and Thursday of the month next week as we finish out this great and wonderful gospel of Matthew. May God bless you as you continue on your path as to be a part of the kingdom of God.